I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Tommy Vitor. And on the pod today, we have the author of the new memoir, The World As It Is, crooked contributor, best friend of the pod, Ben Rhodes is here in studio. In the flesh. Thank yeah, God. Not he is, just text chain. He's, he's co-hosting with us today. So this is your third co-host for today. Yeah. Ben went into a cave to write for a year. Yeah, yeah and they just finally let me out really and turned me out. loose into the wild. And, so good to you see know, you. Here I am. <laughs> um, we are going to talk about North Korea, immigration, the Republican Party's nomination of a Confederate for Senate. Um, but first, a few housekeeping items. Uh, we're going to be on tour at the end of next week. There are still tickets for Nashville, so go to crooked.com. I'm slash pumped to go to Nashville. Me too. I've never been. We're going to be in Atlanta and Durham as well. Um, so, very exciting. Um, also, very exciting news. Today, you can subscribe to the brand new Crooked Media podcast, Hysteria. The new podcast from Aaron Ryan. Guys, this is so exciting. Uh, we've, been, we've been waiting for Hysteria for a long time. I've actually heard a couple episodes. Same. And it is so funny. They're so smart. So Aaron has with her on this podcast um, a bi-coastal squad of women, uh, including our friend Alyssa Mastromonaco, mm-hmm. Ziwe Fumido, Blair Amani, Grace Parra, Kieran Deal, and Megan Gailey. It's a murderer's row of hilarious, hilarious women. It's um, smart. They're great. Go subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts, and um, it'll be out in a few weeks. First episode. It's going to be a hit. We're excited. It already is. Um, Before we get into the news, Ben, tell us about the book. Tell us about The World As It Is. I mean, we read it, but tell the audience about it. Why'd you write it? What was the main message you're trying to get across there? Well, you know... I thought about what kind of book I wanted to do, and I realized that I hated most <laughs> political memoirs, <laughs> like White House memoirs. And they're usually like a list of, like, I was in these meetings, and here's why I was right in every one of the right. meetings that I was in. <laughs> Here are five people who I hate, who I'm going to, like, just set on fire in this book. With, like, a self-aggrandizing and, title, like, The Duty to Serve. Yeah, <laughs> we, like, like, I won't name names here, but like, some of the memoirs that emerged, worthy fights, duty, you know, <laughs> I was correct. Um, like, maybe you were a defense secretary for multiple yeah, presidents. Perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, so that was kind of the genre. Um, but I realized, you know, what I had that was different from, you know, some people is when I went to work for Obama and met you guys, I was 29 and kind of a normal guy, you know, not Hillary Clinton or Bob Gates or Liam Panetta. And I realized I could tell a story if I was much more kind of personal mm-hmm. about what that experience was like. And, you know, spent a little less time in the Situation Room and a little more time about, like, what was it like to, you know, be with Obama in between meetings and what was it like with my personal relationships to go through the ringer of that job, you know, I could kind of take the reader into the experience of the 10 years that I spent with Obama. Um, So that was, you know, how I tried to distinguish it. I also realized that, you know, I wasn't smart like you guys. I didn't didn't get out at a a time that was good for my mental or physical health. (laughs) But what that gave me is I was there the first day and the last day, you know, literally walked in the first day. The last day of the administration, I flew with the Obamas out to California to drop them off for their 
beginning of the rest of their lives. And so I had this ability to tell the whole story and to follow threads all the way through the uh, administration and could really show our boss, Barack Obama, in a way that, you know, I think he doesn't always come across. Like, what's he actually like as a human being? Uh, what's a three-dimensional portrait of him? What does he sound like when he's talking? You know, no, again, not just chairing a meeting, but, you know, when he's making jokes in the car, when he's expressing frustration on a foreign trip, uh, when he's talking about foreign leaders or Trump after the election. So I wanted to let him just talk and, and give his voice a lot in those kind of private moments. Yeah, to me, I mean, there are two, my two favorite parts of the book, one sort of the coming of age tale that you tell about yourself. And that's just selfishly because I was there with you and it was a coming of age tale for all of yeah. us. But so that was really cool. And the other thing was, I do think that you, and, and this isn't shouldn't be surprising, but you capture how Barack Obama thinks and um, sort of what he was thinking during all these moments of the presidency better than anyone else I've seen. I don't think any reporter, some came close, I don't think any reporter really captured who our old boss really is over the course of the presidency. And I think this this book tells you that in a way that is very honest. You were saying this, Tommy, on yeah. your podcast with Ben the other day, that it says it's not like a hagiography, you know? Yeah. He doesn't always look perfect because he was not always perfect. Yeah. Right. And, 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 you know, getting him, you know, I wanted to show how, how was he dealing personally with the transformations in the Arab Spring, for instance? Uh, how did he wrestle with that? Um, but also, like, how did he deal with the toxic nature of our politics? And, you know, we, we were talking about, like, I, I wanted to tell people, like, for instance, like, here's how he talks about race, you know. Right. And, and, and the point I make there is that we didn't have to talk about it a, a lot because it was kind of taken for granted. But it would come out in interesting ways, like we'd be prepping for a press conference and say, like, you're going to get asked about how much of the Republican opposition to you is about race, uh, is it? And he'd be like, yes, of course, next question. And, like, we'd laugh, right? But underneath right. that was, you know, the fact that he felt like he needed to uh, put on a certain – you know, face publicly, uh, but I wanted to show how that stuff kind of backed up on him privately a bit yeah. too. Well, you did a fantastic job. Everyone should um, go buy the book and read it. It is um, it is very, very excellent memoir. Um, all right, let's talk about the news. I want to get into North Korea, but first we should, of course, wish a happy birthday to our president, Donald Trump. The song has 138 million views on YouTube. What is it? It's happy birthday, John. It's in the public domain. I can play it if I want. <laughs> uh, happy birthday to Donald Trump, who, along with his three darling children, is being sued today by the New York Attorney General for, quote, extensive and persistent violations of state and federal law. Uh, the Trump Foundation raised money for a charity and then used it to influence Donald Trump's presidential campaign. They also used the funds to pay back um, lawsuits that they settled that have to do with Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the reason we know all of these things is because the evidence is out there. <laughs> they put their crimes in emails yeah, again. Yeah. They are the worst grifters. <laughs> also, Don Jr., Ivanka, and Eric are all named in the lawsuit because they're board members of the Trump Foundation, which is supposed to scrutinize their spending for signs that their leader, in this case, Papa Bear Trump was misusing the funds. The board has not actually met since 1999, so a bit of a dereliction of duty here. Can I just say that, like, I remember we used to get nervous because all the emails you send in government are, like, public record. And so 25 years from now, someone could find out that, you know, Tommy didn't like some reporter. We weren't like, hey, when you commit the crime, can you make sure to get a receipt for that crime and send it back? (laughs) 
So that ultimately, like, we can be the target of lawsuits a couple years from Looping now. Looping dad on the crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, Corey Lewandowski, he's, this, so he's got stupid. one of the emails just saying, like, when can we get the disbursement of money? <laughs> Hopefully, it would be great if we could get it Saturday when we're in Iowa. Unbelievable. Just not to put too fine a point on it, but. Um, so they're doing great. Um, but let's talk about, let's talk about North Korea. Uh, it's a good day to have my two smartest foreign policy pals here because we had ourselves quite a summit with our new dictator friend from North Korea on Tuesday. Um, upon returning home, conquering hero Donald Trump tweeted, there is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea. Sleep well tonight. Um, so obviously this man is out of his goddamn mind. And of course, uh, North Korea has made no moves whatsoever to denuclearize just yet. But before we get into all the crazy details, what did you guys think overall of the summit? Is the world safer, less safe, or exactly as safe as it was on Monday? What do you think, Ben? I think exactly as safe. And, and I want to make a, a point to you know all our progressive friends out there. It is okay to think that it's a very good thing that we're pursuing diplomacy with North Korea instead of going to war with them and still think that this was – a catastrophe. Right. Uh, I mean, this was a disaster of a summit. Um, let's be very clear here, right? North Korea wants a bunch of things, right? They want international legitimacy. Well, Trump just gave that to them in a way they've never had in their entire history of their country. They're there with the U.S. president in front of all these flags. North Korea wants our military presence in South Korea drawn down. Trump just seemed to want to go out and decide to announce that we're not going to do military exercises with South Korea anymore without even necessarily telling the South Koreans beforehand, something that China and North Korea have wanted for many years. He just gave it to them. And North Korea wants sanctions relief, and I have to think that even if we're not giving that to them ourselves, the optics of this summit, if you're China, you're thinking, like, I'm not exactly going to be cracking down on the enforcement you know, now that you know, Trump is uh, buddies with Kim Jong-un. So North Korea got like a lot of what they wanted for nothing, okay? Like, I want to be very clear about this. Like, reaffirming, I mean, I, you know, Tommy and I have written a lot of these statements. If the word reaffirm is in the statement, you are doing nothing. You are, it's like, I, I reaffirmed, you know, that I will make my bed tomorrow. Like, they reaffirmed a commitment to denuclearization. That Which they they've had, done when in the past? It, under, under Bush, under Clinton. Both times they broke that promise. They did not do it. So they reaffirmed that they were going to do something that they have lied about doing in the past. So really, there, there, there's no new anything out of North Korea. No, no, no timeline to denuclearize, no inspections to verify that they're going to denuclearize. So basically, Trump gave this huge spectacle uh, and really leaves there with nothing except the fact that there'll be more meetings. North Korea leaves there with a lot of the things that they wanted. Yeah. I mean, the Iran deal was like 159 pages, I believe. The North Korea agreement that they signed was 400 words. So they yeah. did they did half an op-ed's worth of work. Uh, and words like verifiable that they talked about over and over and over again in the run-up to this weren't in the document, even though we pushed for it. And that's important because that means we get to inspect all these sites. And when pressed about this I believe yesterday, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, who was traveling in Seoul, got a little snippy, lost his shit on all these reporters. He said it was insulting and frankly ludicrous for them to press him on the details. Well, boo fucking who, Mike? Like the details matter here. This isn't well, Congress yeah, where you introduce and, a bill and walk away. And, and Mike P Pompeo gave a colonoscopy to the Iran deal right? details. You know, right. like th these guys literally like th the scrutiny that was. I mean, I know it can drive you insane if you actually think about I know, it. I know. But the scrutiny on the Iran I know, deal, I know. where we shipped 98% of their nuclear material out of the country, had inspections on all of their nuclear facilities, uh, had you know centrifuges taken out and put in storage, 
the scrutiny applied to that as against you know Mike Pompeo feels like his he he shouldn't be even asked about yeah. like how they're going to make this work. Um, I mean, the double standards here will <laughs> I was, drive you completely I was, insane. I was going to get there later to talk to you two about the hypocrisy around well, this and the Iran deal. Sorry, but I, went there. I knew we'd we'll, get there. We'll early. get there ultimately. No, but, like, but no, it's but, it's crazy. But well, I was going to ask like because we th- there has been this thing on the left where um, some people are like, okay, why are we upset that you know they're talking and they're doing they're doing diplomacy as opposed to you know uh, threatening nuclear war with each other on Twitter? It's like, yeah, obviously that's way better. Yeah. But I'm wondering from you guys and you know Ben, obviously you um, helped lead negotiations with Iran for the Iran deal and then and opening Cuba. If if it was not the Trump administration. What would yes. normal direct diplomacy with the North Koreans, which we would all support, what would that look like? What kind of preparations would you do before that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the two examples I, I can draw from Cuba, you know, I had to do the pre-diplomacy and I had 20 meetings with Alejandro Castro, Raul Castro's son, usually lasted eight hours, sometimes two days. Did you call him a smart guy who loves his country? <laughs> no, I didn't. I, I was going to get to that. It's just too much to get to did here. Did you bro hug him? When I, you... I, I, well, you know, maybe at the end. But, but, Salute his general. But, but, well, you know, before we put – it was two years before we put Barack Obama in the room with Raul Castro. And by that point, we teed everything up. We knew what the agenda was. We knew we were you know, going to establish embassies. We knew we were going to – they were going to release – they did release a, a, a lot of uh, political prisoners and, and take other steps. And we were going to take steps as well. So we did the prep work. You know, now Trump said you know, he doesn't, <laughs> didn't need to prepare. Right now. And that was apparent though. And with the Iran deal, like we had endless discussions about what would constitute a good deal. We had a nuclear physicist, a Nobel Prize winning nuclear physicist, Ernie Moniz, literally in those prep meetings and in the negotiations. So Yeah, but we... how how was he at rebounding in the NBA? Well <laughs> <laughs> Because they had Dennis Rodman. Uh. Yeah, yeah. I mean so so we knew exactly what we wanted to get out of those negotiations. We knew what was success and what wasn't. Um and it you could just see it's like Anybody who's gone into school without doing the homework for the test and the oral presentation, you can just tell. You could tell that these guys had not done the work. You you could tell that they didn't know what they wanted to achieve. They couldn't – you know, all they could articulate before was either a really maximalist demand that North Korea give up all their nuclear weapons. And then coming out of this, they they can't even spin it because they they don't know what they were shooting at. I just want to make two points. Like reiterate something Ben said, which is these details matter because – uh, the North is saying the denuclearization process will be simultaneous. Pompeo and Trump are saying, no, they have to go first. That discrepancy is going to come to a head, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, the only yeah. thing we all agree happened is a concession from the United States that we're going to pause these joint military exercises in South Korea. And that's something that you could you could get there and you could ultimately concede and, and do that. But Trump seems to have just coughed it up in the meeting. And we know that because he didn't tell the rocks or he didn't tell the, the South Koreans or U.S. forces in Korea before he did it. And like all the everyone who's out there saying, well, you know, he brought us back from the brink of war, so we should all be he in favor. Put us on the he brink put us on the brink of war. Like, he, he was yeah. fucking tweeting about yeah. his big nuclear button. So like another thing point you made, Ben, that I just think people need to remember is that by overselling the summit as a success and saying the problems are all yeah. solved, he could make it harder to keep sanctions in place. And yeah. the maximum pressure effort that he's been working on could get rolled back. So like he could have hurt us here. Uh, can I? We talked about what North Korea got out of the summit, which was a lot. We talked about what the United States got out of the summit, which was almost nothing. Um, there's other countries involved here. What did China get out of this? What did Russia get out of this? And what 
did South Korea get out of this, if anything, except a surprise when they learned that they we weren't having joint yeah. military exercises anymore? Yeah. I mean, lightning round on that is China got a huge win because what China wants is uh, less U.S. military presence in their region. So Trump actually made a big concession to China when he said he wasn't going to be doing those military exercises. Um, so the Chinese are sitting feeling pretty good about things. The Russians had a great week. Uh, you know, they the winner of the week, uh, Vladimir Putin, because I actually thought that the more important summit was the G7. Yeah. Because literally the unraveling of the post-World War II order happened before our eyes. You know, yeah. Trump essentially picking fights with all of our closest allies. They are all, and you know, having sat with these people, looking at Angela Merkel, Justin Trudeau, they're clearly past their breaking point with Trump, you know, and he's inviting Russia back into the, the G7. So we, Russia's accomplishing their objective. You know, people always ask me, well, what do you think Russia wanted to, did they want sanctions relief when they meddled in our election? No, they wanted that G7 summit. They wanted to see the split in the transatlantic alliance, a split in the alliance of the world's democracies. And they, they got that in spades. And so Trump, you know, before he goes and cozies up to North Korean dictators and generals, he literally <laughs> blows up the, the, the closest alliances that we have in the world. That is much to Russia's benefit. I think the South Koreans, I, I felt very bad for them in this whole process yeah, because too. they're the reason this diplomacy is happening because they saw this you know, fire and fury locked and loaded, and they knew they were the ones that would be in the crosshairs of that. So they're like, we got to do something here. you know. So they took this initiative. They went to the North Koreans, and I think they brought that back to Trump. Trump grabs it from them and says, okay, I'll go meet with that guy. You know? And I actually don't think they necessarily meant for this to go so fast. I think they just wanted to get some diplomacy underway to, yeah. to avoid a war. So they're sitting there, and they're stuck because on the one hand, they desperately don't want there to be a war because they would suffer all the consequences. But on the other hand, they don't want Trump to, to totally sell them out uh, right. in the process. And so I think right now there's probably a lot of mixed feelings in South Korea. Better this than you know the escalation that we were on, but this doesn't look like it's going quite the way we want. Doesn't selling out the South Koreans seem like something that Trump would totally do at the end of this entire well, process. Oh, like I keep, yeah. I, I wondered this way back when that, like in Trump's mind, the way that mind works, you could see him thinking, like, okay, why do we have all these troops in South Korea anyway? Why do we protect South Korea? What what he is in that. that for us? We yeah. that. So you could see at the end of this process, him saying, yeah, we'll not only freeze joint exercises, we'll remove troops from South yes. Korea, yeah. and then as long as he's not pointing those nuclear weapons at the United States, we don't care what happens on the Korean Peninsula. Well, and he said that over the years, he's made comments about like, why do we have troops in Korea? You know, uh, we have troops in Korea to assure the survival of South Korea. Right. And you know, he says so many insane things that you know you you lose track of them, but. He said something, you know, when he was b kind of boasting about pausing the military exercises, he talked about how expensive they were. Right. That, you know, that may be just a normal thing for Trump to say. But I think people have to realize how do these things sound abroad? If you're Japan or South Korea and literally your existence has depended upon the United States providing these troops, uh, which, by the way, we benefit from, too, because those are growing economies and those are some of our best trading partners. And suddenly you got a guy saying, like, I'm tired of footing the bill for uh, for these troops. They're, the South Koreans are hearing that as, well, at the end of this process, yeah, he very well may sell us out, take out these troops, and kind of leave us here, surrounded by China and North Korea, which is not exactly where we'd want to be. I'd like to add another uh, 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 entity to the list of losers this week, uh -huh. which was uh, oppressed peoples all around the world. Yeah. Well, because Trump has signaled that he does not give a shit about human rights. I mean, he's done this before. The whataboutism when pressed on 
Putin killing adversaries or journalists or whatever. He's like, well, you know, we do it too. We're killers too. But he basically said, you know, Kim Jong-un has to be a rough guy. He's been a rough person. He's smart. He loves his people. He loves his country. I mean, that's an insane thing to say about a guy with 100,000 political prisoners breaking rocks in a fucking concentration camp. I mean, Nick Kristof pointed this out in his uh, piece yesterday where he said that, that, you know, Trump was outfoxed his piece a couple days before (laughs) that where he's like democrats don't be childish like give him a chance um a 2014 un report states that north korean human rights violations quote do not have any parallel in the contemporary world and that includes mass executions torture forced starvation abductions and prison camps john you know there's a source on this uh uh, trump's 2018 state of the union where he said no regime has oppressed his own citizens more totally or brutally than the cruel dictatorship in north korea and and you know I should have like a limit of the number of times I can talk about hypocrisy. But, um, you know, when we dealt with Cuba and Iran, we would always get this argument. But we would always raise human rights in the meeting. Publicly, we would always speak about it. When, When President Obama went to Cuba, he talked about the need for elections. And by the way, the human rights picture in North Korea, as you guys suggest, is so much worse. And not only did he, you know, say the things that Tommy quoted, he he said that the North Korean people love Kim Jong-un, right? Right. And, and, and what you have to realize is he just legitimized his rule. He just said, right. that, well, they love him. That, that's, that's Kim Jong-un's argument for why he does the things that he does in North Korea. And you also have to know North Korea has state media, right? They're going to be playing that in a clip over and over and over again, right? The U.S. president saying the North Korean people love Kim Jong-un. That's going to be playing. They get Fox over there? Can- <laughs> well, yeah, they have- <laughs> Martha <laughs> McCallum live from yeah, the North Korean. Yeah, I mean, like they have, trust me, it's nothing but Fox and Friends over there. Um, and, and Trump just gave them throughout this, this whole summit a lot of content. This is an important point because, yeah, it's like, well, all kinds of countries have human rights abuses and we've dealt with them throughout history. This yeah, is, this is we're not saying yeah. that the United States cannot deal with countries that have human rights abuses if there are um, big things at stake like denuclearizing, right? Well, obviously, Iran has plenty of human rights abuses. So does Cuba. We still dealt with them because there were bigger things at stake. In Iran, it was making sure they don't have a nuclear weapon, right? There is a way that Trump could have gone to North Korea, met with Kim Jong-un, and not praised him like he did, yeah. not said that people love him like he did. And then and then he comes back and Brett Baer asks him about this and he reminds Trump that Kim executes people and has done some really bad things. And Trump replies, yeah, but so have other people done some really bad things. He's a tough guy. I saw that and I was like, I just... Unbelievable. And, well, I, I by never the way, thought I would see... I never thought I would hear After he trashed Justin Trudeau. I mean, part, part of what's so stark here around the world is like he... he can't find enough good things to say about Kim Jong-un while he's like trashing the you know, the leaders of democracies. I mean, how is that going down around the world? Uh, you know, I, I think it, it it's changing the way the world looks at us. Uh, it, and certainly takes us out of the position of leader of the free world. Also, just in that Brett Baer interview, he says uh, he wants Russia back in the G8 so that he can sit down over dinner and turn to Putin and say, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you get out of Syria? Can you get out of Ukraine? That's why they were fucking expelled, you moron. Like, he doesn't understand anything. He has no idea what he's talking about. And the, the human rights stuff, it doesn't just, I mean, it, it worries me, like you said, Ben, about how people around the world see us. But not to be alarmist here, but yeah. it also worries me about how Trump will be in this country yeah, yeah. Um, next year down the road, a couple years down the road. Like, yeah. he clearly sees 
doing things like Kim Jong-un does to his people as just necessary, breaking a few eggs yeah, yeah. Um, as you're trying to run a country. And that's fucking scary. And, and like, we're not that far away. We're about to talk about immigration and putting children in, uh, you know, detention centers at the border. Yeah. But it's pretty fucking scary. Um, so now let, let's talk a little bit about the reaction from Republicans and other Trump sycophants uh, to the summit. Even for Republicans, the hypocrisy was enraging. Um, and I wasn't as close to the Iran deal as the two of you. Um, let's just talk about what Tom Cotton said, just to take one example of hmm. one of the biggest hypocrites in the Republican Party. Here's what Tom Cotton said to uh, Hugh Hewitt in full. Two of my favorites. Right? Two, exactly. Yeah. Mine too, buddy. Uh, countries like Iran and Cuba and other two-bit rogue regimes don't have nuclear weapons yet, he told Hugh Hewitt. They can't threaten the United States in that way. Once North Korea had nuclear weapons, once they have missiles that can deliver them to use, I would liken it to past presidents sitting down with Soviet dictators. So Tom Cotton's point is... Obama should not have dealt with Iran because Iran did not have nuclear until they weapons. got a nuclear weapon. Once they get a nuclear which is, weapon, then which you is deal fucking with them. crazy. <laughs> like I, you know, the time don't you want to stop the country from getting the nuclear weapon? You know, like so. So is Tom Cotton for Iran having a nuclear weapon? Let's take the Cotton Doctrine, okay, <laughs> to its logical extension, which is why don't we just give nuclear weapons to Iran and you know Cuba, and then we can actually talk to them. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. It's so funny because he made up this doctrine. Like, basically by accident, because he all he could think of was knew, how to justify... Because he knew he was full of shit. He knew he, he knew was full of the, shit. This is a man who wrote a letter to the supreme leader of Iran while we were trying to negotiate the Iran deal, saying that, you know, essentially, don't talk to the president of the United States. You know, I, you know Congress speaks for us. But trying to blow up a negotiation. These people... The, these fucking guys, you know, <laughs> the, these people who now say that we can't, we shouldn't criticize Trump and we should be rooting for success, like literally tried actively to derail the Iran negotiations to prevent us from reaching a deal to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. And now they're like, well, the North Koreans, they've got their nukes, you know, so it's great that he's sitting down and talking. It's, just, it's like they're praising Trump from, for negotiating absolutely nothing away from the dictator of a nuclear rogue state. And yet they were attacking Obama from a negoti- for a negotiation with an uh, aspiring nuclear state that removed, what, 90-something percent of its uh, nuclear production capacity? All right, and, l- and let's just pretend for five seconds that these are arguments they're making in good faith. So let's take the substance of them. <laughs> they didn't like the Iran deal because it included sunset provisions on some of the things we did to limit Iran's nuclear program over the terms of like 10 years or 15 years. There is literally nothing has been done in North Korea. Nothing has been accomplished. There's no timetable for getting it done. And they seem just fine with them declaring victory. The other part of this is they didn't like the fact that the Iran deal didn't uh, deal with Iranian support of yeah, terrorism or so, support in yeah. Yemen or all the other things they're doing. This was these issues weren't even raised with Trump in North Korea. Not even discussed. Not even discussed. No, it's not that they just they weren't raised. He praised him for the human rights abuses. I mean, this was. (laughs) It's not that he didn't mention them. He went the other way. Their number one (laughs) argument against the Iran deal is it didn't stop the other behavior: ballistic missiles, human rights, and destabilizing actions in the region. North Korea is doing the worst human rights abuser in the world. Really aggressive ballistic missiles program. 
They just assassinated a guy in Malaysia a few months ago. <laughs> in a fucking right? airport. And, 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 and none of that is on the table, right? And, and, and they have to twist themselves into these knots in order to, to praise Trump. And they can't even – I mean if someone just laid out the Iran deal next to the, the joint statement that emerged from North Korea, like they, 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 there is no justification for what they did. Well, and of course – and the other problem with the Iran deal, all they would talk about is the money, the money that Iran got that's now using to you know, fund terrorism, blah, blah, blah. Donald Trump was talking with Kim Jong Un about fucking country. beachside yeah. property yeah. in yeah. Pyongyang. Yeah. <laughs> Tell him how rich he's going to get. Uh, so, what happens next? Where do we think this ends up? Uh, as Tommy pointed out, Pompeo is saying sanctions relief, no sanctions relief until they denuclearize. The North Koreans are saying the opposite. Um, where do you guys think this goes from here? Well, I mean, Pompeo is talking about a time frame where they'll do significant denuclearization in Trump's first term. So he's looking to get real successes racked up in the next year or two, two years, I guess. Um, so I guess he's now got the ball and he's going to do all the diplomacy that should have been done on the front end, on the back end, now that they've given North Korea this huge propaganda win. seems like the most likely scenario is that this gets bogged down in minutiae. But the, Trump's only genius is he knows that creating a big, splashy, made-for-TV primetime event is the thing that's going to get covered. And then everyone is going to forget about it a month from now, six months from now, and the problem is going to be there. He's still going to be sitting on ICBMs, nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, biological weapons. The scariest shit on the planet is in Kim Jong-un's hands. Yeah, t- tune into the next episode of Pyongyang Apprentice. <laughs> yeah, well, and, what, yeah. <laughs> well, what, and what, what I think is going to happen here is the North Koreans know that Trump needs this to look like a, right. a win, right? And so they have that. And what they'll do is they'll do what they've done in the past, and I think everybody needs to be prepared for this, They'll every now and then they'll invite a bunch of international journalists in and they'll they'll put them in front of some building and they'll say this is a this is a place where we you know this is a reactor and they'll blow up that building and see you know see we're giving up our nuclear weapons, but that's they control that the the, right. the question is because they what they'll do is they'll keep all their, their nuclear weapons someplace else you know and 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 the question is are there international inspectors who are actually going to have access to all of the North Korean program and a timetable for them to give up all of their nuclear weapons. If that is not what is negotiated, then they are not giving up their nuclear weapons. Well, and now they know that when they put this propaganda out, it won't just be them putting it out. It will be amplified by the United States government and the United, and Donald Trump's propaganda network in the United well, States. And, and so was, they now yeah. have a huge ally in showing that all this, well, and, and he- all this bullshit. Helpfully, we already have the trailer for the, <laughs> for the movie, right? I mean, like, 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 what uh, did you make of that fucking movie, uh, that trailer? I mean, like, look, you guys didn't make a trailer like that no, when you were at the NSC? I, I had to sit in meetings for hours <laughs> with Ernie Moniz talking about the intricacies of centrifuge technology. <laughs> Apparently, I should have been making, like, the fucking trailer for Top Gun 3, like, it, with, Showing like Kim Jong Un as a superhero, they right? Had a dude, dunk a basketball in the middle of the thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, oh, he yeah. likes basketball. Sylvester Stallone what made an appearance movie? in that thing. What was that? But Reporters the, were just bad. somebody spent some time on that thing. Yeah. Like like that, that that's like what they were doing to prepare for this. You know, it's um, it's it's really bad, guys. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Hey there, Brenda. 
It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done. Just stuff their feelings down. Maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone. You got to work it out. Get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. I want to talk about immigration. Uh, here's the situation as it stands right now. Um, a couple days ago, the Trump administration decided to urge a federal court in Texas to declare that DACA is illegal so that they can finally shut down the program once and for all which would subject about 700,000 young Americans to deportations. Meanwhile, Trump's new family separation policy has resulted in at least 500 children being ripped away from their parents since May. This included a baby who was taken by ICE while her mother was breastfeeding her. Um, and, uh, and because they're now taking so many children, uh, the Trump administration is looking at building camps to house them that could fit up to 5,000 5, children. Um, right now... Many of the children are in a detention center that includes a gigantic mural of Donald Trump next to a quote from Art of the Deal. That is not a joke. That is real. Uh, some journalists were finally invited in yesterday. Um, it, I have to say, it is like so hard to read this stuff. Yeah. Um, what do you guys? What do you guys think about this when you read these stories? Like, what? Why? Why are they doing this uh, aside from just a pension for abject cruelty? Because I, I don't. I can't figure it out. I think that's it. I mean, I think Trump has a cabinet meeting where he goes ballistic on the head of the Department of Homeland Security because immigration, illegal immigration hasn't been run down to zero. So they go and they implement the cruelest policies they can possibly imagine. I mean, a tent city, putting children in tents outdoors at military posts in Texas to live unaccompanied sounds like Joe Arpaio's policies have been nationalized. It sounds like the cruelest thing you could do to a kid. And like, you know, there's a story in the New York Times about this meatpacking plant in Tennessee that's just heartbreaking. I mean, these are these are uh, you know uh, undocumented immigrants who are who are doing the worst jobs in the country. They're killing and dismembering cows. Not one American worker wants to do this work, and these families are working their asses off to do something no one else wants to do. And they're criminalizing that behavior without without even touching the employers. It's just it's, it's vicious. It's yeah, fucking and vicious. I, and I want to talk about you know, why this, his particular policy now 
is so awful and also very different from what we've yeah. seen in the past because we've had a broken immigration system in this country for a very, very long time. Uh, we had it before Obama stepped into the White House. We had it once he left from the White House. Um, ben, you were there. I, I think we had just left. You were there in 2013, 2014 when we had this crisis at the border where there was an influx of unaccompanied minors. These are children who were 13, 14, 15, 16 that were sent by their parents on their own to the United States, um, fleeing violence from places like Guatemala and Honduras. They show up at the border. Suddenly, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services and a whole bunch of other agencies do not have room for these children. And that's why. And so they are in these centers as well. We dealt with this in 2013, 2014. How did how did we deal with that crisis versus what is happening right now? Well, in a number of ways. Um, I mean, you know, first of all, uh, we did something that that they've completely uh, <laughs> essentially abandoned, which is we actually tried to deal with some of the source problems. Right. So we went down to Central America. We provided a lot of – first of all, we provided a lot of information that, you know, don't do this. Don't send your kids on these journeys. So, like, they, there's, there's huge danger associated with it. We also – tried to uh, provide a lot of assistance to improve the situation in those countries and 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 not just security assistance but to help with economic development and governance there so that you you get at some of the the root causes of this migration uh, and you know they have taken a much more security oriented uh, approach to those countries um, and and then you know what we try to do is is deal with each of these you know cases uh, on the merits you know, you know not just have a, an approach where we're just trying to wholesale ship everybody back. I mean, you, you you need to understand what the circumstances are. Is there a threat? I mean, one of the things that's so just awful to watch here is they're not making allowances for people who are fleeing legitimate right. um, asylum, you know, asylum so, issues, yeah. right? Like, so to, to see, you know, not just the fact that people are le- leaving some very violent places in El Salvador and Guatemala, but, you know, I saw people who are uh, at risk of domestic violence, um, you know, people who have credible claims, like you, you would try normally to adjudicate the case before you and try to understand what is the risk of sending this person back. Yeah. Um, and so they're abandoning kind of any recognition of, I mean, what I see when I look at these stories, which are, I think, the hardest things to read of the Trump administration, th- there's no sense of the humanity of, of any of these people. It's like they're just, they're, they're an in, you know, not just an inconvenience, they're an opportunity to show that we don't want well, to that's here, ex- So know? they they are using these children and, and young children, children who come with their parents. So these are one-year-olds, which four-year-olds, which five, is which is different, yeah. which did not happen in yeah. our administration. Um, and they're using them as leverage. So this uh, ACLU lawyer who's been dealing with this for 25 years, uh, he talked to Michelle Goldberg at the New York Times, and he said, look, I, I've been dealing with this for a while. I dealt with this during the Obama administration, the Bush administration. This is the worst I've ever seen this in my entire life. This is beyond anything. And he said, they've decided that treating kids in this fashion will influence the adults not to seek asylum. Yeah. And they're trying to hurt the children to influence the parents. So they're basically saying to the parents, we don't want to give you asylum. If you really want asylum, you're going to lose your kid. John, yeah, John <laughs> Kelly said as much on the record to NPR. Well, He's a deterrent. I mean – it, 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 what you're saying was is important. Like it's totally discordant to talk about MS-13 like yeah. it's the biggest threat to our country. It's yeah. like events about it, but at the same time, his administration doesn't recognize anyone fleeing MS-13 as a legitimate asylum case. Well, and and I think we have to understand the politics of this. I mean, first of all, one of the strange things that happened in 2014 is we started to you know you detect what the messaging is on the right and in the right wing media ecosystem. They were going t- into places and saying. 
you know, all of these unaccompanied children are going to be resettled in New Hampshire or something. And right. they weren't. But they were scaring people that essentially there'd be these massive influxes of, of, you know, of immigrants and particularly, you know, unaccompanied children in their communities so as to get them to vote a certain way. And that was part of their messaging in 2014 in the midterm elections. And I think what we're going to see here, the, this MS-13 message, it, they paint just like they paint all refugees with the ISIS brush. They're painting all of anybody who's from south of the border as a potential you know, gang member. And I think we're going to see in their political messaging is they have to dehumanize these people and they have to you know, turn them into a threat. Um, and if you, if you are forced to confront the humanity of all, all these individuals who are just trying to get here and have a better life, it's harder for them to do that. So you know, I think the politics of this is that Trump is turning immigration in all forms into a national security issue. And he's going to say, just you know, just like uh, all refugees are ISIS, you know, you know, MS-13 is is you know, in all of our communities, and we have to keep them out. When, as Tommy says, in fact, like these are the victims of MS-13 in Central America, uh, yeah. some of whom are, are desperately seeking some form of asylum. I, I think we also have to have a conversation, um, for, hopefully, for the next Democratic administration about what to do with ICE yeah. and Customs and Border Patrol, because this is not just Trump and people in the White House. These are these agents, and they're saying things to people like, you're never going to see your kid again, and ripping a baby away while the mother's breastfeeding it. I mean, these are not like explicit directives coming from Trump. These are like agents doing this kind of stuff. And I remember when Barack Obama got to the White House, and early on, they were trying to make sure that ICE and the Department of Homeland Security sort of reprioritizes what kind of deportations they do. And it took a long time to do that. They were too slow. Probably the Obama administration was too slow in pushing it. Yeah. But a lot of it was ICE basically turning around to Barack Obama when yeah. he was telling them to change their priorities for deportation and saying, fuck you, we're going to do what we want. I mean, this is a bit of an out-of-control agency right here. Absolutely. And you hear people on the left saying, abolish ICE. And I'll tell you, at first I was like, well, that sounds pretty crazy. But after the last couple of months, I'm like, yeah, maybe. Well, there's huge <laughs> implications, too. Because previous administrations didn't refer these these cases for prosecution and now they're referring all of them and you're seeing like four times five times six times the number of cases going to these courts which are completely bogging them down they can't do anything else but these immigration cases and people are not getting to process in any way uh and meanwhile like just imagine the fear that is spreading through communities throughout the united states like if you're yeah. here and you're undocumented there is no way or if you're, you're a green card holder now <laughs> there's no way you're seeking urgent medical attention there is no way you're seeking uh, help for domestic abuse or a crime against you, you are more scared of the cops and scared of ICE than probably anybody else. So that is really, really dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it, it, I, I can't help but think of how this looks you know, from uh, the other parts of the world. Um, you know, we are losing. If, if you consistently ask people what you admire about America, uh, part of it is that we welcome people from around the world. Part of it is that we speak up for democracy and human rights. The, the things that yeah. people look to us as a beacon of hope for are being systematically dismantled under Trump. And it's, it, it, if this was happening in another country, I think we would we'd be you know appalled by it. Um, and you know, ripping children apart from their families, uh, pl- paying no attention to the the dangers to these people. I mean, part of the hardest thing when I see these stories of people, you know, children being, you know, separated, sent back. 
what's going to happen to them? I mean, right. some of these people are going to be killed. Some of these people are going to be completely destitute. Some have already. Yeah. There was a kid who was deported who went back to Mexico, and he was with his cousin, and they were out one, one night right as soon as he was deported, and he was, he was killed. Yeah. So there, there's, these are real consequences. Um, so there are there, – what to do about this? There are uh, marches happening all over the country uh, today on Thursday. Um, there should be events in the future. Uh, we saw John Lewis, you know, at, at his age, still out there protesting – God love the man, uh, yesterday with other members of Congress. Um, go to familiesbelong.org. That's a website where you can go to find out an event near you where you can uh, participate in a march uh, to keep families together. Um, you can also donate. Um, Kristen Bartoloni, our good friend, whose birthday it is today. Happy birthday, Happy Kristen. Birthday, Kristen. Uh, she tweeted this morning, instead of a, a birthday present, she tweeted uh, the website for the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. It's racestexas.org, R-A-I-C-E-S-T-E-X-A-S.org. Uh, you can donate there. They are doing, uh, that organization is doing the best job trying to actually help fund legal services that are trying to reunite children from their parents. Um, and then, of course, the other, the other avenue here is legislation in Congress. Um, Paul Ryan has said votes on a pair of immigration bills for next week to basically stop an end run by moderates in his own party who'd been pushing a discharge petition to force votes on proposals to protect dreamers. The moderates failed because, of course, they failed because they're Republican moderates and they have no power Paul whatsoever. Ryan didn't get the memo that, like, the retiring member can suddenly grow a conscience. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, he did like, not. like, I mean... He did know. not. He does not care. Yeah, he had na- yeah, for all the times we were like, well, yeah. Paul Ryan doesn't want to do this because if he did, he'd lose his job yeah. as speaker. Well, now you know we what? Know. Now you lost know. your job and you still yeah. don't give a fuck. That's so. fucking weasel duck question about <laughs> Scott Pruitt today. If there's anyone you can kick around at this point it's scott pruitt the most corrupt administration official <laughs> yeah. in fucking history but not not paul ryan he hasn't spineless. he hasn't had time to read the stories spineless. so one of the bills in ryan's office will put up a vote that he wants to put up a vote for has been written by hardline nativists that's awful the other is a so-called compromise bill which i do not have a lot of hope for but reportedly they're looking at dreamer protections and ending family separation in exchange for ending the diversity lottery and cuts in legal immigration um i have to say i have uh more of a stomach now for a bill that is not one that we would generally yeah. like if yeah. it does protect dreamers yeah. and it does end family separation. Like, if there are cuts to legal immigration in the future, I think that's fucking awful and we need to rectify it. But we but are facing an emergency done. right yeah. now where people are being deported and children are being in, in, in camps. And, like, if the, you know, if the Republicans are using that as leverage to get what they want on future policies, like, I would be fine with doing that right now yeah, <laughs> because yeah. this, is, this is an emergency. And yeah. when we hopefully take back Congress and take back the presidency, then we can, you know, fix this. But, um, but that's, that's, that's if it goes anywhere, which who knows, it probably won't. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I live by routines. 
especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. So this this all brings us to our last topic, which is the Trumpification of the Republican Party, uh, which is basically now a cult. Uh, and I did not say cult. Uh, that was Bob Corker, the, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the other day, who called his own party a cult. Um, so just in case we need a reminder of how bad this is, the Republican nominee for the Senate in Virginia is a Confederate sympathizer in 2018. His name is Corey Stewart, and he likes to brag that he was Trump before Trump. Uh, Trump, of course, endorsed this man as soon as he won. This is a man who's posed in front of a Confederate flag. He's done events with Jason Kessler, who organized the Charlottesville rally. He called Paul Nealon, the actual, actual Nazi who ran against Paul Ryan, a hero, um, personal hero, personal hero, personal hero. Um, what, were you, what were your reactions to uh, Corey Stewart winning the nomination in Virginia? He tried he tried to run for governor uh, and Ed Gillespie narrowly beat him <laughs> in the nomination. But now he is one for Senate. You know, I mean, he, he won in some suburban. He won in Fairfax County. It was a very low turnout. Which, but that's one of Virginia's wealthiest suburbs. And what's horrifying is he's laundering his white nationalist views through a pledge of undying support for Trump. That's just sort of become a proxy one for the other. And so everyone's willing to support the blatant racism that should have embarrassed them before. But, you know, the sad thing is the Republican Party can barely find the courage to denounce him because they know there's almost no difference between him and Trump because these are the same assholes who supported Roy Moore. And there's no doubt in my yeah. mind that if Seward had any chance of beating Kane, Mitch McConnell would be out raising money for him because they all care about his money. Like, Corker is right. It is a cult. But anyone who watched Wild Wild Country knows <laughs> yeah. that early on in yeah. a cult, you yeah. got a chance to take out Ma'anan Sheila. Yeah. But when you yeah. let her get all powerful and she's got like 10,000 people there and they're poisoning the city, spoiler alert, yeah. um, <laughs> well, I, that's a, you know, you're, you're screwed now. You, you own this. It's his party. It's, yeah. And I, I just want to, I mean, here I'm just going to go to my book real quick um, because it was really interesting to write the book and relive the last 10 years because I, I – I realized how much what Trump is, you know, was something that was building while we were in office, right? So I'm going to take you guys back to 08. Do you guys remember Fight the Smears? Dude, yeah. I was in charge of that. Yeah, I had to fight to get that thing. It was Tommy and LeBolt right so, there. So yeah. Christina I'm, Reynolds. Yeah. And just to take people to the quick evolution here, there used to be a problem back in the Stone Age when we were on the Obama campaign in 08. What we were dealing with was forwarded emails, right? So basically, everybody's racist uncle mm. was writing an email that Barack Obama was a Muslim or he was born in Kenya or what have you. But these were getting so forwarded around, um, you know, he was a Palestinian terrorist, you know, they were getting so forwarded around that we actually had to set up a, a crack unit under Tommy Vitor to, <laughs> you know, fight the smears to give field organizers and other people like the answers to these things. Now, what I kind of realized, right, is that that forwarded email is now the president of the United States. <laughs> and that, he, he is it, the racist. Yeah, yeah, but it, it didn't happen overnight. What happened is the forwarded emails became Sarah Palin, right? And they kind of got mainstreamed through Palin. And th- she was saying those things on the campaign trail, palling around with terrorists. Then that became the Tea Party, right? And the, you had people running for office, you know, who were echoing those messages. Then lo and behold... There's a birther movement. It didn't come out of nowhere. It was, it was a part of all of those things. Sarah Palin, you know, real Americans, all, all the fight the smear stuff. 
Then you get Donald Trump as the leader of the birther movement. Nobody smacks that down, right? So suddenly you have a dynamic where even to this day, a majority of Republicans believe Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States, right? So the notion that I, I, I can't believe I keep saying the notion like our former <laughs> boss, sorry, but the, the notion that Look what I have said that this this just happened, right? Because well, oh, and I didn't get into Benghazi, so let me yeah. if I may. <laughs> so then you know we have birtherism, and then Benghazi, and I, I, I describe in the book this bizarre experience where Benghazi would flare up. There'd be some you know reason that it's in the news. Then it would seemingly go away. But actually, it would grow, you know, like some scary organism at the bottom of the ocean, because then it would just go onto these platforms like Breitbart or Infowars or Reddit threads. And what I would see is, you know, every now and then I had a Twitter account, right? Like I'd get hundreds of people tweeting at me, just unhinged conspiracy theory stuff. And I knew somewhere out there in the darkness of the right wing media ecosystem, someone had just done some segment on me on talk radio or some Internet conspiracy theory that I was you know, running guns to the Muslim Brotherhood or something. <laughs> and, but, but basically, to understand Trump, you have to understand Benghazi, you know, conspiracy theory, yep. racist brand of politics, all tribal. But again, the thread to me, you, know, you can take it from – Fight the smears to Sarah Palin to Tea Party to birtherism to Benghazi to Donald Trump. And they've been mortgaging their souls to that dynamic, people like Paul Ryan, for, for 10 years now. So this didn't become the party of Trump because he won. It was the party of Trump before Trump stood on the first debate stage in the primary campaign in 2015. Yes. And until the Republicans realize that and realize how deep the problem and the rot is that they have to deal with, like it's, that's going to be the party. And, and where this all ends up is what Tommy mentioned in Fairfax County, Virginia. Yeah. Like, let's talk about Fairfax County, Prince William County, yeah. all right? For people who are from D.C. or from that area, these are some of the wealthiest suburbs of Washington, D.C. Fucking Corey Stewart wins Fairfax County by more than 4,000 votes. The median income in Fairfax County is $115,000 a year. The economic anxiety is very low. $115,000 a year. This is what people in Fairfax County are making. And these are the people who voted for Confederate sympathizer Corey Stewart. So this whole thing after Trump won... Where we like go into these like factory towns and stuff like that. Undoubtedly, those people are experiencing economic anxiety. But, but why Trump won? Trump won um, white people of all income groups, all income groups, all education groups. This was like all other thing. And also the other thing is it's getting worse because last year Corey Stewart didn't win in Fairfax County against Ed Gillespie. And this year he did. Yeah. And this year he did. And that's Donald Trump. And, and to Ben's point that this is not new, I mean, there's a congressman in Southwest Iowa named Steve King yeah. who is a white supremacist. He he retweets these literal Nazi sympathizers who are just the worst p- people on the planet and then ducks press questions about it. So, you know, reporters have a hard time calling him what he is. He's a white supremacist. He doesn't believe in mixing races. He's as racist as he gets. And he's been in Congress since 2003. And every time there's a presidential campaign in Iowa, they all go and they kiss the ring and they kiss his ass. And so he and him, that little cesspool has been there the whole time. And like, never forget, you mentioned Infowars. Donald Trump went on Infowars. He told uh, Alex Jones how great his reputation was. I mean, this is a guy who denies Sandy Hook. This is a guy as recently as like last week said that Anthony Bourdain was murdered because he was going to come out for Trump. Who, I mean, se- who sent people, by the way, crazy. send people up to Newtown yeah, to, to badger and harass the parents of people whose children were killed to validate his conspiracy theory. I mean, these are these are like these aren't just people who you have a political disagreement with. These are bad people. Yeah. Yeah. They've been allowed in. Yeah. And like and, St- and Steve King, I mean, 
it was a couple days ago now, he retweeted this self-avowed Nazi sympathizer. Not people call him that. He says, I'm a Nazi sympathizer, this guy that he retweeted. Um, he has not deleted that tweet. The tweet is up right now, and no Republican has denounced Steve King for doing this. So if any reporters out there who would love to get Paul Ryan on the record about Steve King, or anyone, any Republican on the record about what Steve King has done, please do. Because what has happened is these white nationalists, Nazi sympathizers, Confederate sympathizers, this dark, dark, conspiracy-oriented part of the right, they have made common cause with the tax-cutting, Paul Ryan type conservatives because they figure this is our governing coalition and this is how we take power. And, and I don't think we have the language like to talk about this right yet in the sense that, you know, sometimes I think if you're like a mainstream journalist sitting in D.C., you think, well, Steve King is a, is kind of a kook, He's right? A wacko, yeah. But let's just – if you look – I challenge someone to scan kind of the right-wing media world from Fox to Breitbart – and look at the vitriol that's been directed at Jeff Flake versus the criticism that's been directed at Steve King yeah. and see what you'll find. The point being that, that Steve King is the mainstream of the Republican Party. You know, Jeff Flake has been much more excoriated, condemned by their media organs than Steve King ever has been. That, this is who they are. And it's hard, I think, for people to get their mind around the fact that, you know, no, this isn't just – uh, a couple of kooks who every now and then a Republican can condemn on Twitter. Um, no, this is they're more they're 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 more they're the beast that they've constructed uh, rejects Jeff Flake uh, far more than it rejects uh, Confederate cra- and white supremacy. The thing I saw over the last couple of days is this Fox interview with Marco Rubio, and the Fox host looks at Marco Rubio and was like, "You tweeted that Kim Jong Un is this kooky bad guy." But the president of the United States, Donald Trump, said he was really smart and his people love him. Do you want to reconsider your tweet, Senator Rubio? And Rubio is just like looking at her like, what? No, no, I don't want to reconsider. Yeah. Like, wh- what world are we living in? And the fucking Fox host is just like, oh, no, it's totally All normal. their silence, all their acquiescence has brought us here. They were the only ones that have the credibility and the credentials to push back on Donald Trump and these voices within their party. And they all were cowed. And now there's all these smart analysis pieces uh, that I think are right by people like Jonathan Martin that said, you know, these recent results mean that, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Sanford. Mark down Sanford. Mark loses. Sanford. Him losing means that the real risk in politics right now is getting primaried for Republicans. And that in the way you has get been, primaried yeah. is speaking out against Donald Trump. You know, uh, Obama made an interesting, like uh, I quote him in the book, uh, you know, we were, <laughs> we had many conversations about the Republican Party over the years. And, you know, he said to me when we we're flying to Paris for the final negotiations on the Paris climate deal, uh, you know, he kind of went out of his way to say, uh, you know, say that th- the moment that a, a major political party can deny something like climate change is the moment that it's lost its mind. Yeah. And and I said, well, yeah, even the National Front, these kind of far right parties in, in France and in Europe, you know, they accept climate change. He's like, no, think about it. Like if you if you want to win so badly that you'll deny that fact, you've kind of lost it. And the reason that that's relevant here is that the the tax cutting, deregulating wing of the party you know, once they became so craven that they would deny the the science of climate change, th- they would also get into bed with anybody they needed to win. Like th- these are like people. Donald Trump. Yeah, these are just yeah. With the, they'll tolerate Donald Trump. Like the, the, there there is a there is a compromise that was made somewhere along the way. Look, the Democrats have all kinds of problems, yeah. right? Uh, and and there's a lot of fault to find. But I, there's certain things that you just feel like the Democratic Party wouldn't sell out you know, just to win an election. Um, and something has happened in the last 10 or 20 years 
wherein th- th- there is no there is no compromise they won't make if they feel like it keeps them in power. The problem is they've made so many compromises that the people in power are the representation of the ugliest part of what they've done. It's all worth it for tax cuts and owning the libs. Yeah. That's yeah, what you get. Yeah. The NRA is holding its next meeting over in Moscow. And they're like, eh, whatever, you know, Second Amendment. Um, I mean, so the, the only way to fix this is the total and complete defeat of the Republican Party at every level. It's, it's just, it's not an exaggeration. I mean, we literally have to vote out as many Republicans yeah, as possible. Um, in Virginia, obviously, that means Tim Kaine, re-electing Tim Kaine. Um, Steve King has an opponent in Iowa. J.D. Shulton just won the primary. He's the Democrat now who's running against Steve King. So um, if you uh, if you want to donate to him, that'd be great. And um, and yeah, and all over the country. And a place and lo- like Texas. I mean, because yeah. the, the Republicans, the incentive structure has to change. They have to start seeing that they're going to lose. And that, I mean, so like that's why it's a, it's a long shot. But if a guy like Beto O'Rourke can win, yeah. it, it suddenly says like the new people are voting. You yeah. know, like the electorate is changing because you people are so disgusting. Um, and that's, I think, what ultimately needs to happen. I agree. And the electorate changing is the way to do it. Yeah. Because, and that's, look, I mean, we've said this before. Barack Obama doesn't win Iowa with the caucus goers who usually caucus in Iowa. Yeah. He only wins Iowa if you expand the universe of people who, who vote, who, yeah. who caucus. And that needs to be the case right now, too. Ben Rhodes, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no, thank you. And I, uh, I, I, I'm going uh, on book tour here. Uh, so next week I'll be in St. Louis, Dallas, Miami, Philadelphia. Come back here. So if there are any friends of the pod who want to turn up, uh, I've got Please this stop sign. I will also say, just as the electorate changing will help us win elections, the book buying public can help <laughs> make my, uh, my my book a bestseller. I, I'm just behind Newt on the oh, list. Come, come on, on, guys. Um, so if you guys it. can help me get up there, at least get closer to Newt, we'll send a message to all the, the people who just buy those right-wing books and put them on their shelves. Uh, Are your events so, all on a website or something? Somewhere? Yeah, I'll, 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 I'm tweeting them out. Okay, and cool. it's, great, it's great to see you guys. You can come out, ask questions. I'll be signing books, so I'm happy to talk to people after these events. And, and it's great when people come out and uh, clearly listen to you guys, actually. So. The book's really, yeah. really good. Yes. I read it in a weekend. Me too. Not because I had to, because I wanted to. And oh. I don't read books. And I should add, <laughs> uh, everybody should also, of course, buy Dan's book. And, and people need to buy my book before the Pfeiffer juggernaut comes down the tracks, right, and runs us all over. There, I've, I've basically only been reading my friend's books, and it's been fantastic. Um, Ben, thank you for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, we will see you guys next week. John Lovett's back from vacation on Monday. And then uh, and then Dan and I well then and then we'll be on tour for the end of next week. So you'll be uh, you'll be hearing us live. Uh, the book is The World As It Is by Ben Rhodes. Fantastic memoir. Go buy it. And uh, and we will see you guys next week. Thanks. See you five fans. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com.